Welcome, everyone, to the March Advocacy Division panel discussion. We're glad to have you all here. I'm Don Hansen. I'm your moderator today. I'm the chair of the Advocacy Division and the Shock Free Coalition, and also serve on the PPG Board of Directors. And when I'm not doing that, I've got my own businesses in Bangor, Maine, Green Acres Kennel Shop, and horsefreepets.com. And I'm going to let uh, everyone on the panel quickly introduce themselves, and then we'll get to our topic because we know that is why you're here. And I'm gonna just start how I see you on my screen here, which may be different to listeners at home. Judy, you're first, then Sam, then Debbie, then Pat, then Christy Zazzy. Go for I'm it. I'm Judy Luther. I'm chair of the canine committee for PPG or the canine division, I should say. And I have a business where I do behavior consulting. My name is Sam Wyke. I'm uh, the owner of the Inner Dog LLC, and I work with dogs who have um, very moderate to severe challenges in order to help their lives be better. I'm Debbie. Obviously, I am a little challenged today, but that's the way it goes. Um, I'm at Debbie's for Dogs in West Harvard, Connecticut, and I work with dogs who have behavior challenges as well. I think I was next. I'm Pat Miller. We have peaceable paws in Fair Play, Maryland. Oh, sorry. You're, you're next. You were, you're good. Go, Pat. Pat. Okay. Um, we we have uh, peaceable paws in Fair Play, Maryland, where we offer small group classes, individual training, and behavior modification for the entire range of behaviors from aggression on down. Um, I also offer six-day trainer academies for trainers and would-be trainers to improve their knowledge and skills, um, workshops and seminars, and one of my favorite things I do is expert witness services, testifying in court cases. Excellent. Christy. Hi. Sorry, my internet is really... If it doesn't improve, I will probably step out, but I'm The Christy other option Benson, is I, turn your camera um, off. The camera own... uses a lot of bandwidth, and that might make a big difference if you're comfortable doing that. Um, it's not just my camera. <laughs> it's There's a problem <laughs> okay. with Starlink, I think, in our area, so that's... Ah. Is, yeah. Um, so I work for the Academy for Dog Trainers, and I also have my own... Zazzy, go. Hi, everyone. I'm Zazzy Todd. I'm the author of WAG, The Science of Making Your Dog Happy, and Purr, The Science of Making Your Cat Happy. And you maybe know me from Companion Animal Psychology blog, too. Excellent. Well, thank you, everybody. Panels, we're great to have you be here. And I, I Debbie was really concerned about her hanging upside down like that. And I think it's appropriate today. So we're going to be talking about perceptions and how they affect things. Um, back in the end of the year, the advocacy panel was coming up with our, uh, or the advocacy division was coming up with 
topics for panel discussions. And one that we all wanted to get early into the year was this one uh, called how the words we choose influence human behavior because it really does make a difference. And I'm gonna start us out with some experiences I had, so 27 years ago, my wife and I got into this business by buying a business. And uh, one of the first things we discovered was we needed to, we felt we needed to change the language of some of the existing staff. So we're a boarding kennel and daycare facility amongst other things. And most boarding kennels have this sliding door that goes between the inside run and the outside run. And uh, all of the staff were calling that a guillotine door, which I discovered is quite common in the industry. And I had to explain to them that, you know, okay, Think about you coming as a client. How comfortable would you be with that terminology? So over every many months, we got it to sliding doors. But the other big one, uh, we also were getting lots of calls from people about house training. And there were a lot of people that were still using the phrase housebreaking. And so those were two of the words right away, because I do think they set up people's perception on things. Uh, we worked very, very hard to change. And I'm gonna start with the first one on the list and I've told the rest of the panelists after this, um, we're all gonna discuss this one and then another panelist can pick another one that they desperately wanna talk about. But is the use of personal pronouns. Um, this has become very, very important with people, but I think it's equally important with dogs. And I have to say it's very rare over the past 10 years that I've had any of my clients uh, call their dog anything other than he or she, him or her. But I had one about six weeks ago that called the dog it. It was a prospective client for a behavior consultation. And I do an initial Zoom consult before I get in deep with people. And um, it was clearly affecting how they viewed this dog. Um, this is something that's just just supposed to do stuff automatically. And um, it was a real challenge because I knew I was going to have a huge mindset. And the other place where I see that uh, come up frequently, I do a lot of writing and um, I use a grammar checker to check things out. They do a great job with that. But my grammar checker, when I'm talking about a dog or a cat, it seems to know and it wants to change it to it all the time. And I always say, no, leave it be. But where are you guys on that? Who wants to go first? To me, this is really important. Maybe it's just me, but I'd like some other thoughts on it. Pat. Pat, go ahead. I am obviously totally on board. Yeah, I am totally on board with you. Um, this was a crusade of mine with Whole Dog Journal many, many years ago. And Whole Dog Journal has long used personal pronouns rather than its. Um, so 100%, yes. Other thoughts? Debbie, whose hand is down? <laughs> yeah, what is it? And I'm holding a little mini milk bun, um, which aren't so healthy. Yeah, I have such a problem with the word it. If you're saying it, I think you're talking to like your vacuum cleaner, right? That's something you can make go and it doesn't have any feelings and we don't have that special um, connection. So words are so, so important. And when I'm talking to a client, I usually 
say, well, you know, if I'm talking to the dog, I say, well, your mom or your dad. And, and mm -hmm. I've only ever had one person say, I'm, I'm not his dad. And I think that's a whole stepdad. I, I have a stepdad. When when <laughs> when two families came together, I did, and they liked that. <laughs> I think that's a whole nother one that we we get into on the, the next on our little internal list here below, if we want. But Judy, what do you think? What and what do you see with your clients? Well, I don't have clients um, that say it. That's been gone a long time ago, but. In the past, when I have had clients that use the word it, I really work on switching them over. But you know, it's not just the term, it's how they feel about their animals, right? Well, so exactly. I need to change the feeling and change the relationship. And then that it becomes a he or she to them. And I, I really, I, I generally will spend the first whole session just really focusing on she and he if when that was a problem I just don't see it as much anymore but um I will say you know like Debbie says mom or dad when there's kids in the room I'll say hey go your little brother which is the little four-wheeled or four-legged brother and they really do embrace <laughs> that and then the parents in the family realize okay I've got another kid and they start seeing it differently so it's about changing perception right it is. Anyone else have anything to add? Debbie? I also say, um, you know, you're, when I'm writing up the plan for them, I say your four-legged family member. You know, I don't say your son or your daughter, um, but I, I do say your four-legged family member. And, and I think it's, it's lovely. And the way it's you funny, I don't, I don't say son or daughter either, but one thing I also do is I really work a lot about what we know now in science that dogs are so much like toddlers. Right. And when I explain that to them, generally the whole feeling changes. Well, now I tell people that they're probably smarter than us, but they don't have thumbs, so they can't open the door. Exactly. Yeah. I'm, I'm reading an interesting new book now, which we'll, we, we may talk about later on in the year. And it really gets down to the fact that, and it really addresses the problem that's always bothered me. We address intelligence compared to ourselves, which is totally irrelevant. We have to look at the species the uh, animal mm -hmm. lives in, because I think there are some situations where uh, I think a dog is a rocket scientist compared to any human I've ever met. Me too. Yeah, I. I have, I have long said, if we measured intelligence by ability to scent, dogs would be the geniuses and we would be the, the dum-dums. Right, we'd be so far behind. Or even the ability to find their way, way home when they're lost in the woods. That's such a good one, Don, because <laughs> I have no sense of direction, obviously. <laughs> yep, yep. Zazie, Christy, Sam, anything you want to add on this particular set of words? I don't like it and because I think it implies that a dog doesn't have emotions, for example. And I think most people think of their dog as a family member. And so um, they don't want to use it. They are using he and she. But one of the places where I come against resistance to that sometimes is with editors, because editors have this <laughs> idea that that 
animals, unless it's a specific animal that you're talking about, in which case it's easy to say she or he, editors often want you to say it instead. And that's a discussion that I've had to have with a number of editors over the years. And luckily, it's one that I've always been able to win. But I, there are obviously some publications where people don't have that option and don't have that choice. If you write she or he, it's going to get changed to it, unfortunately. And I think that's a shame. Spell check, yeah. I'm wondering, scientific literature, is it, I bet it's, they're more likely to use it there, or am I wrong? Christy, you might be the best authority on that. Not sure if Christy I, can I, hear, but yeah. one thing I will say is that there is a trend in the scientific literature at the moment for people to start including the dog's names instead of giving the dog's numbers. Now, there might be reasons why you don't want to give the dog's actual names for, for privacy and confidentiality reasons, especially if a dog has an unusual name, but it's become much more common for people to describe the dogs um, with names and to include the names of the dogs in the piece instead of just treating them like subjects and, and numbers and so on. I, I think that's, that's important. What, uh, who wants to pick our next little word discussion on the list that we wanna talk about? We know we've got more than we can cover, which is why I wanted to have some flexibility here for you guys to, to pick what you really wanna, what really uh, do you think is important? I'll give you a few moments and then I'll pick something. All right, then I'll step up. <laughs> oh, I have a cat on my desk. How about Q versus command versus ask? I think that's a good one too. One we started doing a long time ago. And I have to say in the, yeah. uh, in the community uh, with my clients, um, I have not been as successful at that one as I have with, with house training. But uh, tell us more, Pat. Well, it's one that comes up a lot, like in my in my level one academy, when trainers are coming to me for the first time, um, we do a lot of reminding throughout the week that it's cue, not command. So important, I think, because the words we use, and that's the topic of this whole discussion, but the words we use drive how we think and feel. And command essentially means you better do it or else. And a cue is simply an invitation to perform a behavior for which you can get reinforced. And along with the ask, I don't ever say, make your dog sit. It might be ask your dog to sit, cue your dog to sit, invite your dog to sit, help your dog to sit. But all of those I think move the human's brain toward the more cooperative, mutually respectful relationship as opposed to the, um, you know, the military do it or else approach. Well, we all know where that comes from, that whole dominance construct. I mean, command is just a natural to fall into that. So that's why it's there and why it, it still lingers here for so long. Anyone else on, on thoughts on, uh, Command versus Q versus ask, Judy. Well, I found that I just use the word ask all the time now. And something that really changed it was when I had someone teaching their dog to sit and he was a big firefighter or something. And I said, so ask your dog to sit. And he said, sit. 
And I said, oh, no, 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 no. The dog is just looking at you like in fear. So I said, why don't you ask him and give him the option to say no. And so he said to him, can you sit? Bam, the dog sat. It changed not well. First, I told him to use a friendly voice and that wasn't even possible. A lot of men have a hard time with that just because of their tone. But the minute I changed it to ask and he was utilizing a full question, problem went away. He just didn't even understand that he could ask and a dog would respond because aren't we taught for so long use one word cues. And so I really teach my clients to talk to their dog. Yeah. Excellent. Others, Debbie. I agree with you hundred percent. And um, in fact, yesterday I was at a house and the woman was telling me, you know, we always hear how stubborn the dog is, won't follow uh. the hands. And I said, you know, sometimes I don't feel like sitting or I don't feel like doing something that someone might ask me to do. And if you make it fun and worth their while, then they want to do it. You know, we, we want them to have fun with whatever they're doing. And when you use that word, I said to her, when you use that word command, um, it's not fun for anybody. You know, who are we talking to? Are we talking to it just, it just isn't nice. And it was the exact same thing where, so she looked at the dog and, and she said, Sonny, can you sit? And Sonny sat and she said, I can't believe this worked, but it was nice. It was friendly and everybody responds better to fr a friendly voice, Friendliness. you know? And well, we we're, we're, yeah. we're, we're talking about words, but this is where I think the, the, the tone of voice and the body language that's going along with it makes such a difference too. And um, Judy, I will admit the first dog training class I, I went to, um, and Paula and I, when we lived in Wisconsin, we were very, very fortunate. We, um, we could go to classes with Trish McConnell. Many of you know who I'm talking mm -hmm. about there. And she told me, she says, Don, you've got to have a a higher pitch voice, make it happier, more fun. It's like, yeah, no, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> can't, <happen>. uh, <laughs> can't go there. Just not going to go there. That. And, um, you know, it was it was a few years later when I learned how foolish I had been and what a difference it can make. And I occasionally have uh, have men who who want to take that approach or, or teenage boys whose, whose voices yeah. just changed. And oh, no, no, I'm not. And, um, you know, have a recall contest with them. And um, when the dog comes to you every single time and not once to them, they really start to get it because that matters too. Oh, definitely. So, Sylvia, one of our listeners, asked that we talk about stubborn, and Debbie kind of segued there. And I don't want to cut Zazie or Sam off if they've got something on the, the Q versus command, but let's talk about stubborn. Because that's something that I commonly see that people come to me for the first time and they say, well, the dog, dog's being stubborn and just doesn't want to do this. So do you guys see that and how do you handle it? Well, I always, I think some of you have heard me tell this story before when I got a call from a um, client who told me her dog was so stubborn. She was trying to get her dog to sit at the end of every sidewalk before crossing the street and the dog wouldn't sit and I said to her do you sit every time you get to the end of the sidewalk and she said I'm talking about my dog who's being stubborn and I said I know you are but but 
do you do that? Because, you know, for a dog, for it to make, it should make sense to a dog. And I said, you could say, wait to teach the dog not to go out in the street, but then it could be the dog's choice because we always try to control everything mm -hmm. in their lives, which is uh, uh, so much overkill. So a dog being stubborn, you know, I'm always talking with clients, well, you know, define stubborn for me. And we don't always feel like doing something that you might ask and that's okay. How important is it? Um, Sally's gonna bark, so I'll let somebody else talk. And they may not understand. And so of course they're perceiving them as stubborn. If you put me in a chemistry class, I'd be very stubborn because I wouldn't have a clue what they were asking me. So, you know, that's another thing I'll tell people. Do they really know that behavior you're asking for? Well, we label dogs as being stubborn who could be afraid, insufficiently motiv motivated, untrained. Pat, you're probably gonna add some things to that, but so many things that we call stubborn, which unless we understand what's going on, it's kind of a waste. Go ahead, Pat. Right, so I was going to say that also, that there's a lot of reasons why a dog may not be able to or may choose not to respond to our request for behavior. One of my favorite sayings is that it's our job as the supposedly more intelligent species to be able to get our dogs to want to do what we want them to do. That's a good way to phrase it. And I, I do something similar. I think I say allegedly instead of supposedly, but that's <laughs> <laughs> I think another thing is that people simply don't realize how long it can take a dog to learn something. They think they say sit, the dog sits, they give a treat, they think great, the dog knows it already. And they don't realize how much practice is involved and they don't understand that you have to practice in different situations as well. And so they'll just say the dog is stubborn and really they haven't done the work to train the dog, but they don't understand that that kind of work is needed in order to train them. Pat. And another piece of that is if they have always said sit and move their hand up a little bit, and then one day they say sit and they don't move their hand, they're giving the dog different information and the dog may have been relying on that hand signal as well as the verbal cue to do the behavior. Yeah, I mean, I, Sam, go ahead. I guess it, maybe I, I don't want to say approach it differently, but um, Whenever I'm talking to a client, whether it's the first time, the 50th time, whatever it might be, um, I explain to them that one of the first things we have to do is we have to see the world as the dog does. Because a lot of times what we see is them being stubborn because they see the world differently. They do things differently. They value things differently in that. Um, it, we forget to take that into account. And it's always what we want them to do, what we want them to do, what we wanted them to do. No. And we're forgetting their choice. We're forgetting that their value system is different enough at that time that we're not that important. Whatever we're asking them for is not that important. So how do we channel that? But again, if we always talk about what we want them to do, um, but and that's one of those words, want, um, that that always kind of gets thrown into a conversation. So so many times people are like, well, my dog's not coming to me. Uh, they're out there at the fence barking at a squirrel. Well, yeah. All right. So <laughs> we can work on that to, to hopefully get a more reliable recall. So that dog's not being stubborn. It's like, you know, if you're watching your favorite movie and somebody wants to interrupt you. 
No, I think those are all good examples. And one of the things that can make a dog seem stubborn is if they're overly distracted and they're into something that's really important to them. I think it's it's good that you brought that up. And uh, Zazie, I love that you brought up the fact that you know people think, oh, I've done two repetitions in my living room. Now my dog knows this everywhere. I mean, the number of people I have show up to a basic manners class. Well, we're here, but Sparky already knows sit. It's like, well, we'll we'll see. And you know, generally, if we've got a class with five people in it, uh, four of them, uh, the dogs clearly have no idea what's being asked for. And Pat, you mentioned the, you know, the people teach a combination cue, a, a verbal and a particular hand signal. Or I remember in a, a few years ago we had uh, a daughter and um, mom in class. And um, they were each doing the hand signals differently. And not only each one was doing it differently, but it wasn't reproducible from one to the other. And it says, okay, you've got to have some consistency here because yeah, good points. Debbie. I also think it's important to stop and, and humans, it seems, clients all ask their dogs over and over and over, you know, like was Zazie was saying that they want them to get everything right away. But even when they know something and we know they know it, there's never that chance to process, you know, nobody just says, you know, Herman sit, Herman sit, Herman sit, Herman sit, you know, and I'm always saying, give them a chance to process. You know, if you said to your son, Bob, Debbie's coming over, so put your sweatshirt away. Debbie's coming over, so put your sweatshirt away. Debbie's coming over, so put your sweatshirt away. Bob would say, mom, what's wrong with you? But we do that to our dogs. And, you know, we want the world to be nicer and calmer and people kind of stop and, walk and say, oh, I do do that. I do do that. We, we talk about that in our, our puppy head start class. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, the family guy, the cartoon yet, yes. but there's a segment and I never watched it much, but I happened to see this and it stuck in my memory. There's one where Stewie runs into the bedroom, mom's lying on the bed, trying to relax. And it's like, mom, 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 mom. And I remembered it in my head. It went on for five seconds. It's actually 27 seconds and I play that the whole 27 seconds. So them to get the idea of how repeating is nagging. And also if you then react to it, you've just rewarded the behavior, Pat. Um, on a slightly different note, I want to acknowledge that people do need their dog, dogs to be able to do what they ask them to do, that we can't go so far in the other direction, giving dogs agency um, to say, well, you know, they don't need to do what you ask them to do because they have other things on their mind. So our job is to help our human clients learn how to be able to reach their dogs and communicate with their dogs when there are things that are getting in the way of the dog being able to respond. Exactly. Yeah, I don't think anyone here would disagree with that, Sazie. I think you're muted. Thank you. Sorry. Yes. No. I, I agree with with Pat. Yes. We. It's up to us to explain to people that 
how to train their dogs to do these things that their dog isn't stubborn this is what they need to do but i want to go to this comment from facebook if that's all right because i see go that Pam has copied a comment from jill that says cats get this all the time they're perceived as being spiteful or hateful or that they don't want anything to do with humans or that they're grumpy etc etc and this is so true and i think in a way, the same thing applies to cats as to dogs in that often when they're doing things that we don't like, it's because we're not actually meeting their needs. So with cats, people often blame the cat for being mean or what have you, and they don't understand that cats need to be able to scratch, for example, um, to keep their claws in good condition and to deposit pheromones and so on. So they blame the cat for being mean and doing things. And all of these negative words that we use, whether it's for cats or dogs, unfortunately, it's to the detriment of the cat or the dog. And it helps to stop us from thinking about what the real issue is. But we also use them because we don't know what the real issue is. And we don't, people don't necessarily have a good understanding of what the cat or the dog needs and maybe the most obvious situation where someone's calling a cat or a dog spiteful or mean is when they're peeing somewhere where they shouldn't um, and people aren't thinking well maybe this pet needs to go to the vet to see if they have a medical issue they're just blaming the animal for making the mess in the house and thinking they're being spiteful or what have you and that's really unfortunate for the cat or the dog who that label is applied to oh i, I would agree and i mean bathroom issues are one where that is whether it's a dog or cat it's frequently perceived as mm. i should say frequently but i'm still going to say often that oh they, they, they're doing that to get back at me for something right. and um maybe one of the words we should have here is spiteful and revenge how do we how do we yeah. get people mm -hmm. to understand that <laughs> miss that's, that one that's not really uh in the dogs or cats repertoire Right. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it happens a lot with separation anxiety. We see that, you know, right? People say, look what they did. They did this despite me because I left the house instead of they're having a panic disorder. I mean, a panic, uh, not disorder. I mean, what am I saying? This is what happens when you're upside down. <laughs> <laughs> you, hear, you hear clients say, they know they did something wrong. They yeah. know they're not supposed to mm -hmm. do that. <sighs> you know, when yeah. I was in classes and we would work on body position, I don't do a lot of body position training anymore, but I'll never forget when a lady asked her dog to do a sit and the dog wouldn't sit. So the whole class is watching this, right? So I walked over, I got on the ground, my head at the dog's head level. And I said, I wouldn't sit either with the way the sun's coming in the room right there. It really would hurt his eyes. And I always try to get people to think about how they would feel in that situation. Maybe move him a little bit. Maybe the surface is too hard. There's so many things that go with this. No, exactly. I want to move us to this is this is one we're hearing a lot um, kind of going back and forth between uh, trainers. And that is, you know positive reinforcement means you're permissive. Um, and I think all of us here know that is not uh, the case, but how do we respond to that? How do we want to use words there? Hmm. Yeah, I don't think any of us consider ourselves permissive with dogs, but- It's kind of two different things, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, totally two different. You can be positive, but that doesn't mean your dog's running amok or your cat. Yeah. 
I think there are certain factions that may use try to use that as an argument um, against, you know, just strictly force free and positive. Uh, but I hate to say it, but then they are they're ignorant of the definition of permissive. Right. I just looked it up. Right. Um, it, it's well, doesn't it by great or excessive freedom? Yeah. Uh, one doesn't correlate with the other. Doesn't it also get back to this whole control it issue? Yes. Kind of the command thing that, you know, I must have absolute <sighs> control over everything right. my animal does and feels, which is just well, such a... It also opens the door... Sorry. It also opens the door for a discussion of management. Yeah, the way we avoid reinforcement for undesirable behaviors is we manage the environment so we don't have to beat the dog up. We just don't yeah. give them the opportunity to get reinforced for those things. Well, and so so let's talk about management because I think that's a good one here. And it's it's sometimes I have have clients come to me with a problem that I could settle in in five minutes with some very easy management. And instead, they want an elaborate training solution that's that's going to take weeks or months, and even then have a low probability of success. Do you guys? I see some of you nodding your heads, but do you find often clients are unwilling to accept management as a viable solution? Sure. Actually, most of my clients are pretty happy to 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 use a management solution when it's appropriate. Okay. And one of the things I talk about is, one of the things I talk about is you'll hear some trainers say, management always fails, so you have to modify the behavior. And my answer is A, it doesn't always fail. And B, if it does sometimes fail, then we look at how much of a disaster is it if management fails? If the dog kills the baby, then that's huge. Then maybe management isn't an appropriate solution. But if it means, say, the dog gets in the garbage can once, then we go, oh, silly me, I forgot to manage that. So, yeah. And isn't management really I'm a huge fan of management? Manage real, management, if it fails, it's the human failing to follow through, yeah, right? That's, that's what I was going to say. The management itself doesn't fail, but the human responsible for the management is is the one that uh, that almost fails. And I've got a good example here, a good friend of mine, super dog trainer um, and they have been managing to keep the dog out of certain things by making sure the pantry door is closed every single time they leave the house and 11 year old dog and um, one day someone in the family forgot to close the pantry door dog got into chocolate chips $1,700 vet bill later dogs home and, and happy but um, yeah, that that was human error. wasn't wasn't problem with the door. It was it was human error. And well, and they should have put their chocolate chips on the top shelf just in case. Absolutely, <laughs> that would have been good management too. Yeah. Right? This is a dog yeah. that I'm not sure that would have mattered. Really? It's not <laughs> a tall dog. <laughs> this, this is this is a a dog I have seen leap heights. Or its size, you would and weight, you would think are unimaginable. But yeah, I had well, I had a client from Hawaii 
well, they moved to Hawaii and I still did virtual appointments with them, but every year they'd send me a huge gift box from Hawaii. And they did this even before they moved. And guess what it was full of? Macadamia nuts. Highly (laughs) to dogs, right? So, and my husband loved them. I could take them or leave them. But what we did was the macadamia nuts had to be in a box, which was in another box on the very tip top of the shelf. And that's the only way we could keep them in our home because I was so paranoid and the cabinet was always closed or that door was always closed. But it's like paranoia is just good management. (laughs) (laughs) The other piece I talk about with management is what is the likelihood of management failure? So if you have small children in the home, management is more likely to fail. Or if you have adults who don't care, or adults who are deliberately undermining your program, then management may not be as viable an option. Sometimes managing the environment, I think seems like almost too um, easy for some clients, if that makes any sense. Like I went to see a older couple and the man had, some Alzheimer's and they had a shelf for their little dog to sit on and the dog would, you know, go crazy barking when, when everybody walked by. And she said, I don't want to, I like to have an alarm, you know, now, now that I'm older, she said, but the barking really upsets him these days. And it's upsetting him so much that I need to do something about it. And I said to her, take down the shelf. And she looked at me and she said, what? And I said, just take down the shelf and offer a- That'll be $300, please. Alternative, you know, for your dog. So, you know, a few times a day, you're going to, you know, you're playing find it or you're giving a a snuffle mat or you're, you know, using a topple. And she looked at me and she said, well, gosh, okay. And, you know, I, I still talk to them, but it, it's kind of funny sometimes. Well, you have to look at each of those situations individual and kind of help them understand the probability of success. And, you know, Pat, you brought up the kids in the home, especially young kids. I mean, I think that's something um, I routinely tell parents now, you know, don't, don't expect your, don't count on your children to be part of this process. I mean, especially if they're a teenager, think of yourself as a teenager, they are probably not going to be that that dependable. And um, some of them don't get it and, and, and some of them do, but we really have to help them and come up with the best management plan we can for them. And as you've said, point out the places where this is unlikely to to work and then then what do you do when, when that happens? You know, I like- Sorry, Don. Real quick. Go ahead, Sam. A lot of times I find my clients, as soon as I say, if I say the word management, I watch their eyes. Right now, like, oh God, what does this kind of mean? And and they think that it's a lot of my clients think it's some kind of complex, drawn out, you know, rocket science type of thing. And if you like everything else, if you explain things simply, if you set it up as simply as possible so that everybody is is safe or, you know, you're, you're getting the results that you're looking for. Um, it, it, you know, they'll, they'll begin to understand it. But with all the words we're talking about, um, having had a client who is a speech pathologist who teach, called, um, 
cued me in on all of this. Many of the words on here, we are already predisposed in our brains to a, to a context um, that may be a negative context, right? So, you know, aggressive, control, command, you know, obedience, you know, our brains are already set up to think of it in a certain way. And I see this a lot when teaching recall, because as my speech pathologist client told me, the word come is a hard C consonant. And then second you start to get frustrated, that immediately becomes this very authoritative, demanding, commanding type of thing. And, and so we start to look for words that have softer consonants, that have softer meanings. So even when we're saying them, it's coming out differently because of the way that that word is already perceived in our brain. And so many of these on here, master, obedience, control, you know, stubborn, command, correction, dominance. We're already set up for what those words are supposed to evoke from us it to do. And when you say we, you mean universally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, species. Yeah, that's a good point. Really, really good point. Zazie. Christy's put a comment in the chat because unfortunately she's still having internet issues. So is it okay if I read her comment out? Yeah, for her? go ahead. Um, Christy says, also, I'd like to share a line from a blog I wrote about language and its importance in our advocacy for dogs, which has one of my favorite quotes about this stuff. So the quote is philosopher and cognitive scientist Daniel Dennett suggests that language lays down the tracks upon which thoughts can travel sorry lang language lays down the tracks up upon which thoughts can travel and she's put a link in the chat which i will copy over to the facebook chat in a moment which is to a blog post she wrote about why wolf pack terminology is bad for dogs and we haven't got to that one yet but i think that's a great comment from christy so thank you i just wanted to make sure that everyone got to know what she'd said well let's let's talk about wolf pack terminology because that's a big one we still see so who wants to uh jump in on that one. I shared David Meech's video about why his whole alpha theory is not accurate. And that usually helps quite a bit. I think that that helps, but I think it, it's my understanding that a lot of the stuff that was being said about alphas actually, and I don't remember the, it was a German researcher back in the thirties. Um, what I'm trying to say is, is uh, Meech gets blamed for it. And I don't think he's necessarily <laughs> the one who should be blamed for it because his not research- Not all his fault. <laughs> yeah, it's not all his fault. This, uh, this research helps. that was been back in the thirties was non-familial wolves in a, very small environment without adequate food resources. And what did they see? Lots of fighting. And then that's kind of what where all of this grew out of. And I mean, talk about a recipe for predicting that. And then, yeah, the wolf researchers, you know, David Meech did call it alpha and everybody grabbed onto it. And, and the, monks, the, the, the monks. Well, and the monks. And where, where they grabbed onto a lot of their stuff. I, I don't know about, but, um, uh, you know, and, and sadly, it's still there. I have to say I'm seeing it much less than I did 27 years ago, but 
I'm guessing the whole dominance alpha pack hierarchy thing, you guys still have that come up occasionally? I see it a lot, actually. There's a, um, there's a guy- I get it a lot and my clients, my clients are almost invariably totally relieved when they learn that they don't have to be dominant, they don't have to do alpha roles, they don't have to do all that stuff. I agree, Pat. I mean, I see a lot of people after they see these people around here who use that kind of methods. And um, one lady last week told me that she went to her first class and the guy made all the dogs sit on the stand for the full hour of their session. And if anybody's dog was moving and she said her dog was moving, so she felt like she had the bad dog he came over and he pushed, you know, the, the butt down and stepped on the, the leash. And of course we're like, um, but it, it, it's, it's upsetting that it, it's so prevalent still. You see it a lot still in product marketing, mm. all kinds of products. They use the mm -hmm. pack, the pack, your dog be the pack. Look at our pack, the pack that it, it just, right promulgates it everywhere right you have to show them who's boss you have to show them you're the alpha and even in some what i would consider to be positive reinforcement based dog trainers use the word pack in their business name and mm -hmm. right. yeah i mean it's 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 it is all all over the place still um so you you guys brought up that first dog training class so this was long before i was a trainer Paul and I got our first puppy, a Cairn Terrier puppy, and we decided on the advice of Paula's vet or Paula's boss of vet to do a training class, found one at our uh, local AKC kennel club, which was one of the few places doing puppy classes at the time. So we go into the class with a 12-week-old puppy, and the very first night, they tell everybody, ask your puppy to sit. And I explained, well, we haven't trained him to do that yet. They said, they said, this is the signal, ask him to sit. Well, Gus didn't sit because he had no clue what I was doing. And they said, he's being dominant, you've got to alpha roll him. And they described it, what that was. And I thought, okay, this is, this sounds kind of dodgy, but I, I did, you know, the, the place we bought Gus sent us home with the Monks of Newski book. I said, I know what that is. This sounds kind of dodgy, but I did. And I had a terrified dog thrashing around on the floor. And what I was then told to do, and again, not knowing any better, they said, you can't have him snapping at you like that. Grab his muzzle and hold it shut. Mm -hmm. And again, accepting the alleged expert, I did. And proving that the dog is always quicker than the man. Um, right in the palm of my hand and I was bleeding all over the place and the two ladies that were teaching me at this teaching this class looked like I was the absolute most worthless worthless person in the world um they ran to get me ice and I handed the leash to Paula and um the relationship that Gus and I had up until that time was very good it was months before either one of us trusted each other again mm -hmm. And um, 
you know, it's uh, it, it, it's one of the reasons, Gus is in many ways, one of the reasons Paul and I got in this business for so many, many reasons, because we learned so much from him. But it's, you know, and sadly, that stuff is still happening. Not as much, I don't think, but sadly, it's still happening. It still happens. And we know that um, for any relationship to move forward, there has to be trust, right? Right. Exactly. Which is one of the other words we've got on this this list. And I I talk about that a lot with my clients, that trust and respect, yeah. it goes both ways. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they don't always, not everybody always understands that. How how do you guys deal with that? You've got somebody that comes to you with a dog and maybe one person in the family at trust and everybody else is like, yeah, I'm not so sure about them. How do you deal so with that? So one of the things, one of the things that I say is that when what I call old fashioned trainers talk about trust or talk about respect, what they really mean is fear. Mm-hmm. And that when we talk about respect, we mean mutual respect, which includes trust. Yeah. That you can't trust someone if you fear them. My Great way to put it. Pat. My signature line for my email is build trust. Then you teach skills. That's how we change behavior. So my clients know going in and from the moment I'm talking to them on the phone, before I get to their home, when I get to the home, everything is about me showing them how to build that trust because I want their dog to trust me that I'm going to be working with. Um, And if we don't have that, I have learned over the years, there are times when I've had to fire clients Mm -hmm. because of the fact that they didn't see that being an important thing and they just wanted that absolute control, dominance, whatever. Um, But without trust, and again, whether it's us, whether it's our companion animals, whether it's, you know, wildlife, whatever it might be, uh, respect is earned and trust is something you have to build. That's great, Sam. I love that you have that in your email. Well, and it's trust, trust has to be built. It has to be earned and it can be lost in an instant. And that's kind of, I I go back to that story with Gus and that first night at puppy class. And I use that as an example of how, you know, we had had him about two weeks at that time and we had great trust in one another and it was lost on, on both sides. We were taught, you know, when I was in, I'm a, for those who don't know, I'm I'm a retired canine officer and bomb dog handler. And the very first day, they trust each other literally, implicitly, because if either of you make a mistake, you're not coming home. And that really drove home trust for us. I mean, everything we did was about making sure that the dog trusted us and we trusted our dogs. Because uh, without it, uh, yeah, bad things can happen, but it also really cements a bond. And it was interesting that in 14 weeks of canine school, other than teaching our dogs how to alert for a detection, we did not teach them anything else. We didn't teach them recall. We didn't teach them anything else. And yet it happened organically which to me was pretty amazing at the time. 
but I get understand it now more. No, I and, and and that I think is that's an amazing story right there. And I know uh, you had brought uh, up the how you you guys were partners um, the last uh, panel discussion we have, and I I think that's really a an excellent way to look at it because I mean that's really what we what we want with our dogs, right? We get. Go ahead, Don't you Sandy. think it's interesting that all of these words that we're talking about, they speak to that relationship. The ones that we prefer, they're the words that speak to that relationship with the dog as a partner, someone with whom we have a really good quality of relationship. Whereas the words that we're not liking are the ones that are associated with old fashioned dog training in which people expect the dog to do as they're told and people don't care so much about the dog's needs or the dog's emotions or whether the dog is fearful or any of those things. So I think it's really interesting that there are so many different words, all of which feed into a more modern approach to dog training and thinking about using positive reinforcement with the dog. No, I think that's great insight. And I have to tell you, it's one of the things that I think gives me the most hope is because what when most people get a dog now, they want it to be a companion. You know, they're not looking for a dog to to guard the house, to round up the sheep. Most of them are looking for a dog that's a companion, which I think makes the whole relationship thing. I hate to say that we have to sell it, but I think we would all admit that sometimes we have to do, but it makes it easier to do that. I want to see if we can squeak in one more word here, and that is there's a lot of talk now about giving dogs consent and choice about why that is so important as well. And we've kind of touched on it on the periphery, but not using those specific words. Um, what can you guys tell our listeners about that? Well, I think it's Debbie. um in you know, like for instance, uh, somebody called me and they wanted me to teach their dog a strict heel, they said. And I said, well, I don't do that because then you take all the joy out of the walk for the dog because the dog really needs to sniff. And, um, you know, there's, there's other ways to get a dog to walk alongside you because they're happy to do it and we could have fun with it. So I, I think yeah, I mean, it all goes to what you said, Zazie, you know, kindness for the win, right? That's my tagline on my email, by the way. That's nice. I like that. Yeah. Yep. Judy. I'm really big into choice with the dogs. You know, for instance, as Debbie said, when you stop at a curb, I tell my clients, stopping at a curb and waiting is really hard. Let's not throw something else at them. And I don't care if they're sitting, lying down, standing on their head. And I, I say that all the time. But one thing that I found when we give choices to dogs, they have some control over themselves, right? When they feel like they have control, we have to control them less. Our, our need, a lot of people's need, I don't have any need, but um, you have less need to control anything. So it's it's really interesting, just that change in giving them a lot of choices. And my dogs get choices as many things as I possibly can, you know, where they walk, what they wear, what they eat. Yes. Okay. So doc, Dr. Susan Friedman has a fantastic quote that I use a lot about choice. 
She says, the power to control one's own outcomes is essential to behavioral health. Yeah. And then I talk about how few choices our dogs have in their lives. We tell them when to go to bed, when to get up, when to eat, when to play, when to go to the bathroom. So the more we can find opportunities to give them choice, the more they'll be behaviorally healthy. Absolutely. And build that relationship. Um, I, you know, I often tell the story about we went out of town and I really didn't want any responsibility to think about anything. So no matter what my husband asked, I'd say, you decide, where do you want to eat? You decide. And on the way home from that trip, he's like, this is the best trip ever. We did this and we did that. And I'm like, awesome. I didn't really care, but a perfect example of giving choice builds relationship, builds confidence, makes them happy. And, you know, like I said, it made me happy. I didn't have to make any decisions. That was a great example, Judy. I really like that. It took me a while for it to catch on. You know, I'm coming home and he's talking about this and about three days later, I'm like, oh. Yeah. But I do want to toss the ball back to Pat here real quick, because we did also at one point talk about there are sometimes dogs want to make choices Choices. that are not going to be good for them sure so talk just not necessarily bad choices but yeah choices that that we can't allow them to make in that moment so yes we 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 find as many opportunities as we can to give them choice and we have ways of communicating with them in non-aversive non-coercive ways when we need to be able to say, not in this moment. This isn't your choice in this moment. And that's just good guidance, right? You know, I let my dogs take a walk. I let them choose a direction, but walking in the middle of the street is not going to be an option. And right. that's for us to step in we, and take certain choices away. And isn't yeah, guidance we, we just another word it. for management? <laughs> yeah. Information. But you know, we, I'll give, we actually give me- teach a cue. We actually teach a cue, you choose, to tell our dog, in this moment, you can choose. You you have the choice here. So when the trail divides, we can say, you choose. And when we're walking across the street, they don't get the choose cue. That doesn't mean they only get the choice when we use the cue, but it does give us a way to communicate to them, this is a choice opportunity. I love that. I was out one day and I saw a few people doing terrible things to their dogs and I was feeling very yucky. And then I came around the corner and this um, older woman came out with this very old beagle, you know, the, with the totally gray face. And she went to the right and he went to the left and she said, Oh, Moose, are we going to the left today? Oh, all right. I thought we were going to the right, but okay. And off they went and it made everything better, you know, go Moose. (laughs) Well, it it is time. Anyone have any last, is human. Yeah. last words of wisdom on this topic they want to share with our listeners? Listen to your dogs. They're always talking to you. Usually with their body. And words matter. Right. <laughs> words matter. And words matter. Excellent. Well, thank you, panel. It's been great having you here. Thank you, listeners. And uh, next, our next panel is on April 19th. 
And this is a joint panel that uh, Judy and I are doing together, the advocacy and the uh, advocacy division and the canine division. And um, I've still got my um, old title on the notes I just brought up. What did, what did we decide we were calling it, Judy? Oh gosh, you would ask me that. Sorry, I don't mean to put you on the spot. We originally got to call it the most dangerous myths about dogs, but we we changed it to something something other than that. Yeah, myth, myths. Piss myths. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, I think it's going to be a good panel, listeners. So we hope you will join us for that. We're we're doing a panel like that on cats at some point in the future. We need the feline division to gear up to uh help us with that um but um yeah cam said it was misunderstood facts yes okay excellent good the most misunderstood facts about dogs excellent so we'll call it a uh, call it a week and thank you so much panel thank you listeners we'll Thanks, see everybody. you next month uh right. april 19th thanks that's good You've built your dog training skills and decided to dedicate your life to helping dogs and their people. Now it's time to get your business up and running smoothly. Let's do it together. At DogBiz, our business is to help yours succeed. So we've designed a course with step-by-step -step instruction to help you get your business off to a great start. Even better, we'll do it in just two days. Join us live on April 14th and 15th for starting a dog training business A to Z, an online intensive course that will cover everything from what services to offer and how to price them, to bringing more clients to your door, all while learning how to achieve better work-life balance. And if you need help going from your day job to full-time dog training, we'll cover that too. Make 2023 the year your dream of running a thriving dog training business becomes a reality. Join Gina and Veronica by reserving your spot in the course at dogbizsuccess.com slash A to Z. If you're gonna teach me, teach me false free. People can be good and kind and that's a great philosophy I can flourish, I can learn if you'll just help me Show me, guide me, be my friend and train me happy I can be the best dog I can be if you believe in me And if you're gonna teach me, teach me You're gonna teach me, teach me for